Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 3, we are up to the third chapter in our study through Revelation, and we are up to the letter, Christ's letter to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3 verses 1 through 6, and I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Give ear to the reading of the word of God. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed uh, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, a little over 30 years ago, James Montgomery Boyce, some of you might know who that is, he wrote a a book called Christ's Call to Discipleship, and the opening words of the first chapter of that book are as follows. He says, There is a fatal defect in the life of Christ's church in the 20th century, a lack of true discipleship. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, it is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity, there is actually very little following of Christ himself. And that means in some circles there is uh, little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord, are not Christians, Matthew seven twenty-one. Now, He said that was in the 20th century. He wrote that about 32 years ago. Um, Those words might sound extreme uh, to some, but I think his words, maybe you agree, I think his words ring truer now than they did 30 years ago when he first wrote them. And that sober warning regarding the casual, nominal, and superficial kind of Christianity that is so common among uh, many professing Christians today, that that also applies to churches as well. In a lot of ways, I think that that... That little paragraph I just read isn't just true of some professing Christians, it's true of some churches as well. In fact, I think it sounds a lot like the spiritual condition of the church in Sardis that we just read about here in our text this morning. Our text today is the the fifth of Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in those first uh, in Revelation 2 to 3. And I think this one is probably the most difficult of all of them to read so far. We've read some difficult things. You know, most of these letters, and so far all but one, have had some pretty strong notes of rebuke and calls to repentance. Uh, there's seven churches, and I think we saw last week, five of the seven, in five of the seven, Jesus calls them to repent. Only two of them don't receive any kind of word of rebuke, but I think this one is the most difficult of all of them to read so far. For unlike the other, other letters we've read up to this point, where Jesus has at least some words of commendation to his churches, this one contains just about none of that. 
Even even Ephesus, the first letter that we read, right? Uh, he he goes what we think is kind of a long list of good things about them, and yet they had left they had left their first love. But he commends them first. Ephesus was rebuked for abandoning for her first love, but he tells them in, in chapter two, verse two, that they had quote tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And he also said that they were patiently enduring for his name. Those are good things. Those are very commendable things. He says that before he gets to the rebuke uh, that they had left their first love. The church in Pergamum, they were rebuked for having some among them that held to the teaching of Balaam, uh, chapter 2, verse 14. But before he got to that, he told them that they had held fast to the name of Christ during a time of persecution. He said, this is what you're doing well. Here's what's commendable in my sight, but, this, you know, what's, what's, we always say there's always a but, not always, but, uh, but he did, he did praise them first for things that were commendable about them, but not, not the church at Sardis. This letter, there's not a hint of commendation or praise to this church. This letter probably has, I think, the most serious and stinging rebuke found in any of the letters. Maybe Laodicea might be close a close second. And what does he tell them? He says they had a reputation or a name of being alive, but they were actually what? Verse 1, dead. The reputation was that they were alive, but he says they were dead. Now imagine that. Now I've, I've had, in, in my long, long years of, of Christian life, I've had a, a occasion where someone, uh, another professing believer, has called it, said, oh, that church is dead, that kind of a thing. I had one friend who was of a Pentecostal persuasion, uh, and he came to our church, not this one, uh, years ago, back in my Navy days, uh, and our church was not of the Pentecostal persuasion. And so his verdict on our church was that it literally, he said it was dead. And a friend of mine uh, was quick to rebuke him and told him that uh, people swinging from the chandeliers or a lack thereof did not mean the Holy Spirit was not at work. Uh, I don't believe he visited our church a second time after that, but uh, I don't believe his his uh, verdict on the church we were a member of at the time was accurate. I believe he was very much wrong in that particular uh, verdict of our of our church back then. Uh, but this is Jesus. When Jesus says your church is dead, your church is dead. He's not mistaken. He doesn't have he doesn't need a new prescription on his glasses. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Remember from the last. Letter. They were dead. Think about how shocking it must have been for that church to hear these words uh, from the mouth of, of Christ. This brings to mind, uh, to my mind, Paul's epistle to the churches in Galatia. You might know that of all of Paul's letters to the churches that we have in the New Testament, the book of Galatians is the one letter where he doesn't offer any note of commendation uh, or, or warm greeting. Every other letter we have from Paul in the New Testament, even Corinth, he has words of praise and commendation to them. Corinth, there was a church that you'd probably tell yourself, you know, if we were back then, we would avoid that one. Corinth had problems. Corinth had all kinds of issues. They had problems. They had divisions. They had discipline issues and more immorality issues. But in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 verse 4, Paul says he thanked God for them always. I don't know about you, but if, if that was my home church or if I was called to be that pastor of that church, I don't know if I could thank God for them always, but Paul did. He says they weren't lacking in any gift, chapter 1, verse 7. 
and even goes as far as to say that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ was going to sustain them to the end, quote, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had high hopes for Corinth. You and I probably would not, but we'd be wrong. Paul didn't look at Corinth and say, oh, it's a, it's a waste of time. It's a, they're just gone. Paul was thankful for God. Paul saw God at work in them, but in the Galatians, he doesn't do any such thing. Look, Galatians uh, verses uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 7, he says this. Here's kind of how he opens the, the letter. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You know, if I could borrow the quote from, maybe some of you have seen the little video of R.C. Sproul, it's my, my favorite quote. He says, what's wrong with you people? That's, that's Paul in a different way of putting it. Paul's saying, what's wrong with you people? You're turning away from the gospel to a fake gospel. That, that's why Paul couldn't give them any commendation. Having problems is one thing. Turning your back on the gospel is a whole different animal. That's why there's such a difference in tone. They had turned away from the gospel of Christ, and in doing so, in doing so, they had turned away from the Lord who had called them by His grace. That's what Paul tells them. And so, this letter, similarly, this letter to the church in Sardis, is a wake-up call for a dead church. It's a wake-up call for a dead church. Now, I know that's a mixed metaphor. That's really what it is. It's the way that the letter reads. That's what we find in our text. The Lord Jesus calling his dead church to wake up from her slumber of death. The fact that this church had a reputation of being alive, verse 1, should serve as a sober warning for many churches today. My hunch is that if we were around in that day and had known the church in Sardis, we would not have concluded that they were a dead church. But Jesus did. So the first thing we see in our, our text here this morning is this is Christ's rebuke uh, and, and his wake-up call to this miserable church in their dead condition. In verses 1 to 2, he says, same thing he said before, I know your works. Remember, he walks among the lampstands, which are the churches he knows. He really knows what's going on. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. It's like, you know, you light a fire at the fireplace at home, or if you're out camping and you have a campfire and it starts to die down, what do you do? If you see it dying down, you start stoking the fire. You put more things on it. You, you, can, you can still save it. You can still bring the fire back up to where it ought to be if you act quickly enough. That's what he's calling the church to do here in our text this morning. This church did not have a reputation of being a dead church. Probably quite the opposite. In fact, what does he say? You have a reputation for being alive. This means that, that a church can be very active. A church can be very lively and full of people, full of activities and ministries of all kinds, and yet still be dead in the sight of the Lord. I think there's a lesson for us as a church here. Remember, all the letters, what do they end with? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, this doesn't mean that this describes us, but what it means is it could. I mean, if the shoe fits, wear it. If it does, follow suit, wake up, strengthen what remains. But it's a warning to churches who aren't dead that this, you know, this is something we want to avoid 
ourselves. We have to be careful not to judge the health of our church or any other church by the amount of activity that we engage in on a regular basis during the week. We may have a very busy ministry calendar of events. We might be a veritable beehive of activity, even ministry activity, and it's still fine that our Lord's rebuke here applies to us. Activity doesn't mean life. Activity and busyness are not necessarily signs of spiritual life and vitality. In fact, such things can be quite misleading, can't they? Our text tells us as much. James Ramsey writes the following. He says, Let every church standing high in the estimation of others and prosperous in her external circumstances remember that while men are praising, Christ may be frowning and his judgments impending as a thief in the night. Human eyes may detect no flaw where the eye of Jesus sees only death. That's what this letter is saying. That's what we must take to heart as a church as well. Such a church as the one in Sardis and ones many in our day need a wake-up call. And so that's what Jesus does. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. The original Greek phrase could also be rendered like this. We would never, we don't talk like this, but it could be rendered, be being awake. In other words, wake up and stay awake. Quit nodding off. That's That's kind of the connotation here. And Jesus points to a fatal defect in their works, doesn't he? He doesn't say you have no works. He doesn't say you're sitting around doing nothing, quite the opposite. But he says they had a fatal defect in their works. That, and what was it? He had not found them complete before his God. Now, what does that mean? Are any of our works the best works on your best day of following Christ? Are any of your good works perfect in this life? No. Is that what he's saying? Because he'd say that to all of us. He'd say that to every church, every believer in Christ. He's not saying everything you do is imperfect. Everything we do is imperfect. Our worship this morning, as on our best Sunday, is far from perfect. Everything we do in this life is far from perfect. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that their works were not done from faith and love in Jesus Christ. They were not done in sincerity and in truth. They were left... The word can be literally translated unfulfilled. I think most of it he's saying is they're, they're really not doing what God wants them to do at all. They're doing things, but they're probably doing things that weren't the will of God and weren't in any way to be thought of as salt and light in their community around them. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Herman Hoeksema says this, This implies that some works which, which the church and the world is always called to perform were entirely neglected. The church did not let her testimony go forth in the midst of the world. It was no shining light in the midst of the darkness of this present world at all. I think he's right. Their works were unfulfilled in the sight of God. They had not done what God was calling them to do as his church. And that brings us to the second thing in our text is, is not just a wake-up call, but a call to revival. That's what this letter is. It's a call to God's church for Revival. What's the remedy? What's a dead church supposed to do? It can be summed up in one word, and that word is revival. That's what a dead church needs more than anything else. Every church needs revival, but especially one that Jesus says is dead. In verse 3, Jesus says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come out like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. 
Those are some harsh words. Those are some hard words to hear. Our Lord's stern rebuke for this church in Sardis and others like her today contain words of hope and mercy, though, don't they? It's it's easy to be taken back by the harshness, the harsh soundingness of of his rebuke. But it, there is there is a note of mercy and hope here, isn't there? He doesn't just write them off. He doesn't just say you're done. You know, close the doors, goodbye. He tells them uh, to wake up and repent. The fact that he tells them to wake up and repent implies that they could, in fact, be revived by the grace and power of God and by the Spirit of the Lord. It's not too late is what he's telling them. The fact that they are told to remember then what you have received and heard and keep it and repent tells us they weren't. It also tells us they weren't always in this condition. This is not how this church started. The church of Sardis did not start off as a dead church. It started off very very much the opposite, in a good condition. They had started strong in the grace of God. They had heard the good news of the gospel of Christ, maybe from the apostle Paul, and they had repented and believed. They had set forth to follow and serve Christ in all things and in all ways. They had been taught the whole counsel of God, for at least for a time. In former days, they had a sincere hunger for the word of God, And they prized his sacraments and the public worship of God and the means of grace. There was a living church at one time, but somewhere along the line that changed. We don't know when, we don't know why or how. And I think that too should serve as a lesson for us in the church today. What's what's the message here that we are to hear the Spirit saying to the churches? It's saying, he is saying that we, we too can degenerate into the church in Sardis. This can happen to us too if we aren't watchful and careful. And so just as we said before that, you know, a lot of activity does not, is not a sign of spiritual life, good beginnings are no guarantee of continuing or future faithfulness to Christ. We don't get to rest on our past accomplishments. We don't get to say, well, we used to do this and this and this, so we're good. Now we can just coast and rest on our laurels. If we or any other church find ourselves slipping into a similar state or condition, we should do what, what Jesus tells this church to do, to retrace our steps. You know, what do you do if you lose your keys? Besides panic, you start thinking, where, did, where was I? Where did I get? You retrace your steps backwards. You repent and turn back to the Lord and remember. What does he say? Remember. He doesn't say innovate. He doesn't say make the church new and improved. Think of a better way to do church. He says remember. Remember and uh, what we have received and heard. What we have that makes us a church are things that we receive from God in Christ, especially the gospel and his word. We're, we're not a church because we do what we think is right in our own eyes. We receive everything we have from God, and we heard, emphasis on heard, we heard the word of God, we heard the gospel and whatever it was that we heard in the gospel of Christ, and when we believed it, we are to what? Keep it. The church is not to be like the world. The church doesn't operate the way the world operates. We don't make things new and improve. We don't innovate. We remember, repent, and keep what we have received. But where does revival come from? Or I should say, where does it often start? Where does revival often start? Does it not start at times with nothing more than a small faithful remnant in the church, following the Lord and seeking his face in prayer. And so he, he addresses the remnant here. You know, the remnant is a very, very common theme, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New. 
There was always a faithful remnant in the Old Testament. As bad as things got in Israel and Judah, there was always a remnant. In Elijah's day, remember Elijah thought he was the last one left? Jezebel had tried to kill all the prophets, and he says, she's killed, they've killed them all, Lord, I'm paraphrasing, and I alone am left, and what did God say to him? No, you're not the only one. In fact, I've reserved for myself. He doesn't say, there just so happens to be, you know, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He says, I have kept for myself 7,000. God never allows the candle to go all the way out. He always sustains and keeps a remnant for himself. And so the Lord in our letter here, he addresses the remnant. As bad as things were in this church, there was a, a faithful remnant in the church, and so he addresses them as well. Think about how discouraged they must have been. I know some of you have been in your past in churches that were much like this church in Sardis. And maybe you grieved over the way that church, things were at that church, over the way the truth was not held to sincerely, it was not preached and taught clearly. Uh, that can be a very discouraging thing to be around, to be in, to have seen the sad, miserable condition of Christ's church in which they sought to worship and serve him. But look at what he says to them, to this remnant in verses 4 to 5. He says, yet you still have a few names. There's that word names again. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He doesn't say you're a dead church and you're all, you're all dead to me. He knows, of course, he has a faithful remnant there because he has kept that faithful remnant and he offers words of encouragement to them. Notice again throughout our text the, the word name or names keeps coming up. Back in verse 1, if you're reading the ESV where it says reputation, it's the same word for name. He's really saying you have a name. You know, your name is your reputation. You have a name that you're living but you're dead. Um, and now he's using the word names again. The church having a deceptive name for being alive while she was dead did not change the fact that there was a faithful remnant there among her members. A few, what? A few names who had not gone along with the tide and had not defiled their garments the way the rest of the church had done. And so what does Jesus say to them? He gives them a wonderful fourfold promise. It's like he just, one thing after another, he tells them that he's going to do and is doing for them to sustain them and cheer them up in their difficulties there in that church because they walked with him and followed him sincerely in this life and they did not leave their works of faith and love in his name undone. They would what? They would walk with him in white. They would walk. So you're going to walk with me in white, these these ones who had not soiled their garments. Why? Why is it? They walked in a manner worthy of the calling they had in Christ. The word worthy there has the idea of something that's fitting. They didn't, they didn't earn their way. They didn't earn this right to walk with Christ in white. But they had walked in a manner worthy of their calling in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. And so they were counted worthy by God's grace. And they would walk with him in white someday. Those who conquer would also be clothed. What does he say in verse 5? Clothed thus in white garments. This speaks of the spotless perfection and glory which every believer in Christ will be received by the Lord in on the day of judgment. Not literal white clothing, I don't think, but it, it, what does white mean? White means no sin, utter perfection. We don't have that now, but one day you will. 
This reminds me of the benediction at the end of the book of Jude. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you what? Blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, dominion, or glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He's able to keep you from stumbling. And then he says, to present you blameless, blameless, before, uh, in the, before the presence of his glory with great joy. I mean, think about that. Remember Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. He has this vision. The king just died. King Uzziah just died. And, and God gives Isaiah a vision of, of the Lord. And we know from John's gospel that vision of the Lord was the vision of, of Christ. And he saw the vision. He was lofty and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw a vision of the glory of Christ. And what did he, what was his next response? I'm a dead man. I, I have got no right to be here. Uh, judgment is about to fall upon me from the glorified Christ. He's going to kill me. He's going to judge me on the spot because I'm a man of unclean lips. And as if that weren't bad enough, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Nowhere for me to go. And what, what did God do? God, the, the seraphim touched his, his mouth with a, a live coal from the altar and said, your sin has been atoned for. And then he says, who's going to go? And he volu- all of a sudden he's volunteering. Here am I, send me. Well, think about that. Think about what his reaction was to the glory of God. And yet Jude in the scripture tells us that, that our Savior is able to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. If you're in Christ at the day of judgment, you're not only going to you're not going to just get in by the skin of your teeth and and wipe the sweat from your brow and think, ah, I thought you're going to be in his presence with great joy in the presence of his glory. Only the gospel can do that. Only Jesus Christ can do that for a sinner like you and like me. What a thought. Think about it. To be fully forgiven and justified before a holy God, not just in this life. Uh, and you know, in this life, we enjoy that kind of through a mirror dimly, like we know it. You know you're forgiven, but you don't. Sometimes your assurance goes up and down. We don't always enjoy and experience the joy of our salvation. But in heaven, that's all gone. In heaven, there's nothing to hold back your enjoyment of God and your Savior forever. That's what he's talking about here in this letter, as well as at the end of the book of, of Jude. A third thing the Lord promises those who conquer through faith in him. He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Some of you might have read that and thought, whoa, wait a minute. Does Jesus ever blot people's names out of the book of life? That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say that anyone's name is ever actually blotted out. Uh, But there are some whose baptism and initial profession of faith give us the impression that their names have been written in that book, but whose names will be shown to have never been found there in the first place. Revelation 13.8 tells us uh, when the Lord's elect, uh, when their names uh, were written in that book, When, if your name is in the book of life, when was it written there? When you came to faith? No. It, Revelation 13.8 says that their names were, quote, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If you're a believer today, your name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. You read that same phrase in Ephesians 1, verse 4. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, before day one, before he had created anything, before he had created you and you had done anything good or bad or evil or indifferent, he chose to save you before the foundation of all the world. God's decrees do not change. God is not surprised or taken by 
surprise at anything that we, we do. Finally, the last thing he does promising them, he tells them that he will confess our names before his father and before his angels. Verse 5. Think about that. He who was not ashamed to lay down his life for your salvation, who endured the cross despising the shame, will not be ashamed to confess our names before his father and before his holy angels as well. I, I can't even comprehend that. I can say the words this morning to you, but I, I don't even have a clue what that, how that would be, how that would feel, what that must be, what that's going to feel like. But that's the promise to those who are in Christ, who are faithful to him, even in this letter, which means us. It means you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're following him, however imperfect your church may be. These are the promises he makes to his people, uh, his people who know him in truth. In conclusion, the great need of the hour in the church today is to wake up and be revived. The church needs revival. If there's ever been a time in your life, I think, that the church needs revival, it's now. That's probably always been the case. Everybody probably always thinks that, but I think that's true. And we've seen where that kind of revival often starts, often with just a small faithful remnant. But what's the source? We've seen where it often starts, where, what God uses to start it, but what's the source of real revival. You ever see a church that puts a, a on their on their thing out front, they schedule a revival. I've seen it, maybe you've seen it. I always get a kind of a perverse chuckle when I see it. I'm like, really? You can just put that? Why didn't we think of that? We should schedule a revival. I, if I had only known that it was that easy, we should just schedule it and it'll, it'll just happen. Uh, but where does it come from? The source of all true revival is the grace and power of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the work of his Holy Spirit. Think about verse 1. I'm kind of going in reverse here. I'm starting at the end and going back to the beginning. In verse 1, remember Jesus always starts these letters with a self-description taken from the first chapter of the book. How does Jesus, the glorified Christ, describe himself to the church, this dead church in Sardis? He, ta- he calls himself or refers to himself as being, quote, him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you were here, maybe some of you weren't. We looked at the vision in chapter 1 many weeks ago. We said that, why does he say seven spirits? How many Holy Spirits are there in the Godhead? Don't say anything more than one. One, right? There's one Holy Spirit, not seven. But how many churches are there in the vision, in the letter, in Revelation? There are seven. What he's saying is he's talking about the Spirit's work in his office, uh, being sent from the Holy, from, from Christ Himself, His work among the churches. The Holy Spirit is active in all of His churches. And so, that's why He's described here in Christ as the one who has the seven spirits of God and those seven stars. The Holy Spirit, uh, Christ is the Lord of the church and He alone is the one who can grant the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon His church. That's what He's telling them in that opening verse about, about Himself. He's the one that has the seven spirits. He is the one who can outpour, pour out his Holy Spirit upon his church to bring revival. He is the one alone who can grant that. The Holy Spirit is the one who revives and awakens dead and slumbering sinners. And the Holy Spirit is the one who revives and awakens a dead and slumbering church. And so we must humble ourselves and pray and ask God, ask even the Lord Jesus Christ to revive his church, to pour out his spirit upon us that we might worship and serve him acceptably and effectively in our generation. Every church, even if we are not Sardis, we need that. Every church always needs that. Apart from him, we can do nothing. 
That never changes. We always need the Spirit to be at work in us. And he also says he holds the seven stars. Remember what the seven stars were in that opening vision of Christ that he gave to John? The angels are the, or the stars, rather, are the angels or the messengers of those churches. And so, if I can be selfish for a moment, pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastors. That's what this message is saying. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out truly called, qualified, and gifted pastors into his harvest field. Why? What does Matthew 9, 37 and 38 say? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a lot of pastors. Jesus said the laborers are few. Pray for churches who have unbelieving, spiritually dead pastors. I hate to say something like that, but there are many that fit that description. How do you pray for them? Pray that he might revive those pastors. Pray that he might save and awaken some pastors or pray that he might replace them with faithful men who will preach the gospel of Christ and make the whole counsel of God, of God known to his church. May our Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to revive his dead and sleeping church in the world today. May we see, may we get to see churches awakened to the grace of God that's found in the gospel of Christ alone and so be restored to usefulness to him for the glory of his name. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and uh, we read these letters in the book of Revelation and, and we don't know what to think. We see uh, this warning and wake-up call to a, a spiritually dead church, uh, but we know that you are the one who sends revival, that you are the one and only you are only the one that can do just that. And we ask that you would revive your church in our land. We pray for the church in Ramona, uh, all of your churches here in Ramona, that there are many, we, we fear, that do not... Uh, that fit this description, that are dead, that do not hear the gospel being proclaimed truthfully on a regular basis. We pray that you would revive your church, that you would revive pastors, that you would pour out your spirit upon your church, uh, all of your churches here in town that, that claim to know you and go by the name of Christian. We pray that you would revive your work in the church uh, in this town, and we pray that you'd revive us, that you would work in us by your spirit, pour out your Holy Spirit upon this church, and uh, give us grace to be faithful to you, to serve you in our generation, to make you known, to glorify the name of Christ in all that we do. And we pray that you might see fit to bring revival to our town, that many would come to salvation through faith in Christ and repentance and, and come to know the joy of having their sins forgiven and having the inheritance that nothing can take away in Christ in heaven one day. We pray that you would let us see you at work in and through us and that you would receive all the glory for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.